0: Hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are you? How are you on this hot? hot saturday um but you know what it is a lot better being hot than it is being cold and so i hope that you all notwithstanding a little bit of the perspiration factor i hope that you make the most of today and get out get out this weekend my goodness it's supposed to be great here in in minnesota we have a great show today um we're going to start out with um historical occurrence. That's a mild word for it. Um, And then um, I'm going to share a little bit about that and well share my first block with that. Then we have a wonderful, wonderful guest for the big interview. David Edgerton Jr., the founder and principal of the DEJ group is going to come and talk. Um, David is black and he's going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a black person here in the Twin Cities as well as in America. And then in my C-block, I've got something to share with you about a training uh, that I did this week. But let us begin with this. Um, We have the fact that we are less than a week past the 100th year since the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot which on Tuesday had President Joe traveling to Tulsa to give a speech and to talk about how that incident had stolen hundreds of millions of dollars of generational wealth from thousands of black families, including um, the fact that he called it really not a race riot, but a massacre in which more than 300 black Tulsans died and 36 blocks of the city were destroyed, an area that had been known as the Black Wall Street of America because of the wealth created by a prosperous black middle class, many much of it tied to the oil wealth of Oklahoma. But that wasn't the only race riot where white colored people destroyed the property and lives of black and brown people. Thus, I came across A Bloomberg News story dated September 21, 2020 by Trevor Logan and William Darity Jr. titled, Look look at What Has Been Taken from Black Americans. The story is in part about Elaine, Arkansas, which I will get to in a second. But the authors note um, this, quote, in the first half of the 20th century, White mob terror against black Americans occurred across the nation, rural and urban, north and south. In 1910 alone, there were an estimated 16 massacres. The year 1919 was so deadly, it was called the Red Summer, with more than 30 separate incidents. The violence persisted for years in Oakey, Florida, 1920, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, Rosewood, Florida, 1923, and many more and other places. Unquote. The authors noted that the Red Summer, that is the summer of 1919, was fueled by white hostility to the demands of black soldiers who had returned from duty following the end of World War I, the previous fall. The black veterans were unwilling to settle for second-class citizenship. Um, They had served their country, and they felt that their country owed them something more than Jim Crow. White-colored people, though, wanting to keep their power and control, did what they knew best. They terrorized blacks in return. Which brings us to Elaine, Arkansas. Located between Memphis and Little Rock, and just a mile or two from the Mississippi River, Elaine, Arkansas in 1919 was a farming community with cotton as the main commodity. Most of that cotton was tended to by black farmers. Some were sharecroppers, but others were tenants farming land owned by white color landowners. For years, white landlords had demanded uh, that they have the privilege of being the first buyers of black farmers' crops. And in doing so, those white farmers always offered to buy those crops at well below market rate. And it was, in essence, yet another form of indentured servitude, a way that white-colored people kept, kept their knees on the throats of black people. With black vets now returned from service, veterans who had sacrificed for a country that wanted to still hold them down. Uh, the farmers of Elaine and the surrounding county were inspired to form a union with the goal of creating a system to sell their crops to the highest bidder, just like any farmer in America would want. The black farmers tried to be strategic about their plan. They hired a a prominent white-color attorney from Little Rock named Ulysses uh, Bratton, and they had gone ahead and formally joined this new union, the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. They had joined that. But of course... This was met with a great deal of resistance of farmers union and blacks having equal economic power would upset the Jim Crow hierarchy in Arkansas. At some point on the evening of September 30, a group of black farmers gathered in a church in a lane. Some of them were armed um, because they knew trouble was ahead. And at around 11 p.m. on that night, September 30th, 1919, a group of local white men approached. Some of them had law enforcement people with them. They approached the church and ultimately fired shots into the church. The shots were returned, um, resulting in the death of a white man. Now, of course, this was instantly viewed as an insurrection. That is the word used in multiple accounts of this date. And the governor called in 500 National Guardsmen. So everyone appreciate this, okay? Black people are attacked. God forbid they fight back. And then, of course, the white power structure declares it an insurrection and then comes in with massive force. And a, does that remind you of anything recent? Um, according to an August to um, 2018 article in the Smithsonian Magazine by Francine Yunama, those soldiers were charged with, quote, rounding up heavily armed Negroes with orders to shoot and kill anyone who resisted. This was, certainly, a license to kill. And before it was over, at least 200, 200 black men, women, and children were murdered. I'm going to say that again. Think about that. 200 people dead, because black farmers, 101 years ago, simply wanted a fair price for their crops. Out of this came 12 black farmers being charged with murder, of course. Known as the Elaine 12, they were given summary murder trials by all white juries with attendant guilty verdicts and death sentences. Now, the NAACP got involved, and this happened to be One of the very first cases that the NAACP ever got involved in litigated, and they hired lawyers to appeal the convictions of the Elaine 12. And ultimately, the case of the Elaine 12 went up to the United States Supreme Court. Now, I know what you're thinking, but guess what? Incredibly, in a first-of-its-kind ruling in 1923, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the convictions of the Elaine 12 with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes writing that if convictions were the result of public passion and there was no other recourse than the Supreme Court itself had to step in and guarantee the rights of people, including those 12 defendants. Eventually, by 1925, the Elaine 12 were released from prison. But then, of course, their lives and the lives of those around them were scarred forever. Now, I'd started down the road on this story talking about um, the financial cost of the Elaine Arkansas massacre. I mean, we've just talked about the human cost, of course, but this is where an idealist, Ida B. Wells, comes in. She was black, and she was an investigative journalist. This was an incredible status for a black woman at that time. And at some point um, soon, Ida B. Wells will be my featured idealist. But she went down to Elaine, okay? Came down, she was in Chicago, went down to Elaine, Arkansas. And I don't have the time to highlight everything that she did, but I will tell you what she did that was incredible. is She calculated the financial cost to the Elaine 12 on being denied the proceedings of their crops, along with the loss of their livestock and equipment. She came up with, for the... for. For those 12 people, the cost was $100,000 in 1919. That is the equivalent of $6 million in today's dollars. And there were another 75 sharecroppers that were jailed. They didn't get death sentence, but they were jailed. And they each lost a year's worth of cotton, which she, Ida, well, Ida B. Wells, calculated was worth $1,000 to each of those sharecroppers. In today's dollars, that's $60,000. You can see how these numbers start to add up because of the, the, the way white supremacy worked and the way that white-colored people wanted to hold black people down. All told, the economic loss of the residents of Elaine was more than $10 million in today's dollars. That doesn't account for the value you put on Lives Lost, of course, and the horrible scarring. The bottom line, there were dozens of instances like Elaine where corrupt white color people took from innocent black people. This is not at all the kind of thing that most were taught in schools. Indeed, for this show, I had to self-educate about Elaine in those instances. You can do that too, you know. Take the time and learn and understand about this history. It is part of the fabric that produced George Floyd's murder and that of countless others of black and brown people. Think about that. Okay. We will be back um, after our break for the big interview with uh, David Edgerton Jr. Um, I know that you will love that interview. He is high energy and high information. Um, If you like what you listen, uh, like about this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from listeners. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back on le 2.0 Radio on AM 950. So do me a favor. As I said, make sure you do some reading up about Elaine, Arkansas and the red summer of 1919. It is very important to know. All right. Well, now, though, I am thrilled for the big interview. I have somebody here that is, you, I think, are going to really like Um, David Edgerton Jr. is the founder and principal of the DEJ Group, based out of the Twin Cities. He does executive searches and recruiting. He has a BA from North Carolina A&T State University and an MBA from the Carlson School of Management. And uh, he does executive coaching and a number of other things, but he and particularly why I've had him on the show. He talks about diversity and inclusion. David, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you?
1: Oh, I am doing just fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on your show today.
0: Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I am thrilled to have you. You know, um, so audience members, I... I met David about a month ago uh, when he came and spoke to our Rotary group. Um, No, that's not the right phrase. He came and enthralled our (laughs) Rotary group. Um, And when, um, you know, and audience members, you know that I'm a speaker and a trainer. And when I saw David, I said to myself, like within five minutes, this guy is like me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or I'm like him, you know, with the level of energy. And so, David, you know, you know. How to talk to people, you know how to, you know, you know how to do it.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, when I came to speak to your group, it was really all about connecting with the audience and connecting with those wonderful people, and, and you know, that's something I really enjoy doing. So, thank you so much oh, for well, that. I appreciate those kind of words.
0: Well, you're welcome. So, um, I want, you know what uh, what I want to do is get a little bit of your story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I'd really love to get your read about where you think our country is right now around diversity inclusion. I mean, you're doing some of the same work that I'm doing. Yes. You know, but you're also in the C-suite doing some coaching with people and you're also recruiting people for companies. And I'd love to get your take also on the common complaint. We can't find them. Okay. Ah. All right. Okay. <laughs> yes. So yes. Let's start out a little bit with your story.
1: Sure. Sure. I'll start with... You know, I uh, have been in the Twin Cities for 20 years, but before I moved here, uh, I'm originally from North Carolina, and I tell you, I'm, I'm a little sad that Coach K announced that he's retiring because I've been a Duke fan my entire life, almost 50 years. Uh, I was actually born at Duke Medical Center because okay. <laughs> that is my hometown, Durham, North Carolina. So I would say that, you know, growing up in Durham, North Carolina, it's very diverse, you know. And my upbringing, especially when you start talking about kindergarten, el- elementary school, middle school, it was pretty much an environment that reflected who I looked like. Okay. Very much so. So I went to an all-black elementary school. I went to an all-black middle school. I went to an all-black high school. Wow. And while that made— Is this
0: in the—would this be, what, the late 70s, early
1: 80s? Uh, Yes, late 70s, early 80s, yes. That's exactly when that time was. Uh, Really mostly throughout the 80s into the 90s almost. So— the reason I mention that is because, to me, when I go outside to play, when I go to school, there were so many people that looked like me. So, right. to me, that was normal.
0: Right, right.
1: Then I go to college, and I go to a historically black college or university. For those that don't know what that is, that's just basically several schools that yep. were created.
0: HBCUs. Yeah,
1: HBCUs. They were created for the education of slaves and their descendants. And I'll put it that way, nicely. Uh, so... They could go ahead and get an education and be able to you know have a productive life. So I went to one that focused in engineering because that's what my degree is in electrical engineering. And then once I graduated and got my first job, that's when it shifted. Okay. Like 180.
0: Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I got my first job as a manufacturing engineer at a company in Pennsylvania.
0: We're, the, whereabouts in Pensy?
1: Uh Lancaster in okay. Amish country <laughs> okay all right well outside of
0: outside of Philly, outside of Philly but yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: About, yep. about an hour of Philly yep. on, to yep. Philly on uh, Amtrak you know because I used to go down there for haircuts and uh, cheesesteaks so but when I got that job and I moved in to that area and when I went to work, I was the only one that looked like me except for maybe two others in a company that had engineers, scientists, you know business people marketing folks, sales folks. The company, I think, at the time had maybe three thousand people in that location, but there were three that looked like me.
0: Can I ask you a question? Yes, you can. Did that company come on campus and interview?
1: They did come on campus
0: okay. all right. come so, to campus and interview. All right, interview. so you know where I'm gonna go later on oh, in this interview. Oh, gotcha, okay. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right. Okay, okay, gotcha. All right, so go ahead. Gotcha. All right, so you're the you're 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 one of a handful. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so what I mean, how were you treated? That's an
1: interesting question. <laughs> In certain respects, it was as if I was a novelty, hmm. especially in the engineering space. Because, right. as we know today, and I'm going to get to this later, but you know, diversity in engineering and in tech fields and in the industry, uh, you know, needs a, lot, a little, a lot of work <laughs> and a little bit of help. So even then, when we're talking, you know, mid '90s, now, uh, it was great that people said, "Hey, we we got somebody different working with us." But I did face some racism. I, I can tell you this short story. So I remember uh, being in a like impromptu meeting with a couple of people,
0: and white white people, white yes, colored white, people, white, white
1: white people. Yep. And this guy who was on the team came up behind me, and he put his arms around my neck, almost like uh, almost like a chokehold, but it wasn't really a chokehold because he wasn't trying to choke me. But here's what he said that got me he said yeah see this is what we do to people like you from Kentucky or, or in Kentucky which it was where he was from <laughs> and I never forgot that I never forgot that so to me I did said Dad,
0: oh. did the other colleagues laugh and
1: well they did and then one of them didn't quite get it which he was I think processing what was going on and he was checking to see if I was cool So for me, being the Mm -hmm. only one, I said, uh, "Uh, okay, all right, this is what you do to people like me in Kentucky, huh? So you know what that references, right? Of course. So so I said, okay, so that's how that was. So then I, I worked there for about a year and a half, then I'm moved to Indiana to Indianapolis that's where the oh, headquarters geez. was so what you say out of the pot into the fire maybe a little bit but I, but in Indianapolis wasn't as bad though I, I didn't seem to face that kind of in okay. your face type of
0: and were there more situations more of of
1: you there were more people that okay. looked like me okay. that not only worked at the headquarters but also in the city itself
0: right oh well I would expect that for sure yeah yeah,
1: okay. yeah. so so I enjoyed that time uh, but, there, you know, there's things that you face here and there anyway, you know, um, get, get looked over for promotions, you know, things like that, or, you know, being excluded from certain meetings, excluded from certain things. Uh, I had a great time there. I think I was promoted twice when I was in Indianapolis. So I was having a good run. And then I got the call between the planes crashing on oh 9-11.
0: Okay, no, hold on. We're going to have to stop there. Okay, okay, okay all right. Okay. Because I want to get more of this story, but we got to take a break. Okay, oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Okay, no problem. Okay, all right. So, listeners, we've been speaking to uh, David Edgerton Jr., the founder of the DEJ Group, who is, um, as far as I'm concerned, a rock star, and he's here to talk about. Largely now, we're talking about what it's like to be a black man in America. Absolutely. And so when we come back, we'll do more of that. If you like what you hear, um, visit my website at elliekrug.com and uh, follow me on Twitter at elliekrug. Thank you. I'll be right back and thanks. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Ellie Krug here. All right. We've been uh, talking for the big interview with David Edgerton Jr., the founder and principal of the DEJ Group. And David was recounting um, his experience uh, of being a relatively, one of the few black people, men, um, in the companies when he started his career. And you were, before we took our break, you were telling us about a call you got literally in between the two plane planes going into the Twin Towers.
1: That's exactly right. And uh, that call was to come to Minnesota, which is why that was such a significant call. So I got a job here, and this is, of course, 2001. So for the last 20 years, I've spent time working at several companies, that company was Amation, which is no longer around. So from there, I worked for Amation, I worked for Best Buy, I worked for Be the Match, worked for Anderson Windows, and throughout all of my corporate experience, then decided to get into this space of diversity, equity, inclusion, leaving engineering and IT behind. Because when I walked around to different meetings, when I went to conferences, when I went to events, I was still like, want a few. So my thing was, well, what can I do about that? Because I love the space and I thought that it was a space that people could come into and really make a good living, you know, do some really great things. So that's what led me to DEI. Uh, And when I got into DEI, I was actually asked to be a director of DEI. And I did that for a while. So hold on,
0: uh, audience members, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion, just so people know that. Okay.
1: Uh, no problem. Yep, Sorry about yep. that. So, so then once I did that, then the pandemic came and I found myself without a role at a company. And in the middle of the pandemic, I was trying to figure out what should I do. And because I love this work and I still want to make an impact, I started the DEJ group.
0: You did? Okay. Yes. I did not realize it was that new. So it is. What, what's your opening date? What was your opening date?
1: Well, I registered it and so let me say that real quick. I registered it actually in 2017 because I was doing some teaching and some consulting. But then the move to do executive search and recruiting, that came right around November time frame of last year.
0: Oh my god. Okay, well this is great that we have you here. So yes. for a little bit of exposure. Yes. So so David, mm-hmm. you know, um uh my impression of Minnesota, okay, mm-hmm. so I'm from Iowa. My audiences know that, all right? Not a lot of diversity down there either, Okay, okay. but I went to law school in Boston and, and practiced in law in downtown Boston for five years. And my impression here of the Twin Cities, you tell me how much I've got it wrong, <laughs> okay? Um, there's a lot of diversity here, but a lot of white-colored people don't see it mm-hmm. because um, there's no sizable black middle class we're brown middle class. Okay. Um, that's my impression. Okay. Okay. And that this, it's very stratified. You have a lot of people that are on the lower end of the economic ladder for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. You have some people that are on the upper end mm-hmm. of the economic ladder that are diverse, but otherwise not a whole lot in the middle. And and some of that's based just on my experience. I worked downtown Minneapolis. You walk through the sure. skyways at, sure. at lunchtime, Sure, you know, with all the people, you know, white collar jobs, you don't see, you know. You don't see a whole lot of people that are black or brown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of that, I think, well, when you look at the state, and I want to quote this, right? I think if we're going to just pick on, uh, say, black people for the sake of this conversation, uh, I think the state says we have 6% of the population that's black. So with that, uh, if you look at different organizations, corporations, and different companies here, where you see the diversity is really in the entry level and individual contributor role. Okay, so right. so if you're coming in as entry level, and let's say it's jobs like, you know, call center jobs or manufacturing jobs, data production processing, jobs, yep. data processing jobs, things like that, that's where a majority of the diversity, when you look at it demographically, exists. But as soon as you get to a role where you have to make a decision and you get more ownership and you start managing people, that's when the diversity drops off significantly dramatically dramatically Uh, mckinsey and company actually uh, put out a nice graphic uh, that shows how it progresses from that entry level to sort of that first level management then to like director and then to c-suite and then when you go through those stages it just gets worse worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse so part of it i think is there's there is a wonderful community of black professionals here uh, there are some that work at these wonderful large companies in very high positions. There are some in middle management, and there's like I said, just talked about, you know, at that individual contributor level. There's there's some there too. But what you may not be aware of is the fact that what Minnesota presents is a revolving door. In a lot of ways, right. oh a, yeah, it's for a revolving sure. door for sure, and that's because the culture here. And me coming from North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Indiana, you get the right, here, you get the right, right? to say this. <laughs> I get the right to say this. Coming here, the the culture is a, is a very very closed to just outsiders in general, right?
0: I've experienced the same. I mean, most of, my, of most of my good friends here are expats from exactly. somewhere else. You know? Exactly. And, and but throw on skin color oh boy. on top of that. Okay? Now you got
1: something, right? So what a lot of people do, and, and there was a study that came out, I think, in 2017 by a good friend of mine over at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, that talked about 60%, I think, of black professionals today at that time. We're looking to leave the state within the next two years. Right. That's that's an alarming number. And then you have to dig into that and say, well, why is that? Well, one, when you go to work at some of these places, you think you could come in and be yourself. You think you could come in and actually make decisions. You think you could come in and actually have an impact and contribute. Right. But And talk a little bit about your life. And talk a little bit about your life, right? Right. You think you could do that. However, you're not really allowed to do that or – it's almost as if when you do that, it makes you a target for certain types of discriminations, microaggressions, all those kinds of things. So I think what happens here is a lot of people, especially when I was in grad school here, a lot of people said, hey, we're going to come here, get an MBA, get a grad degree, go work for one of these great companies. And then we're going to the East Coast or we're going to the West Coast or we're right. going to places that are a little more diverse.
0: Right. The other problem is the weather, of course, because <laughs> if you are, you know, if you aren't from here, okay, yeah. it is... You know
1: it can be difficult to adjust to on on top of the other things. But you here's know? the thing with that though. My take on that was I can always put on more coats. <laughs> I can always put on more right. layers. So what happens is people will blame the the weather, weather okay. to say, "Hey, that's why we can't find people. No one w- wants you know to come here uh, who has a tan like mine. You know <laughs> because it is too cold." But really, what they're talking about, especially with the Minnesota Nice thing, right? They're talking about the coldness of how they're treated, not necessarily it gets down to negative 20.
0: So you and I are both in the business of trying to help organizations become more diverse. Yes. And one of the, I mean, you know, I work with a lot of law firms. Okay. And one of the things that I hear constantly is we want them, but we can't find them. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And my, uh, my answer to that is use your imagination <laughs> 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 to find
1: them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what's your answer to that? Here's my answer to that. And I actually taught a part of a course yesterday at the Carlson School uh, in their executive education program on recruiting and hiring diversity. So I'm going to be coming a little bit from that with what I'm about to say. Part of it is this. Henry Ford said, you know, if you do what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you got. So what I encourage people to do is, as you look at your hiring practices and your recruiting practices, Stop going to the same wells expecting yeah. the wells to change. <laughs> you got to find some new sources to find this talent that you're looking for. A lot of times you can go to schools that are not within the 25 mile radius you're comfortable with, or the 50 right. mile radius, or the 100 mile radius. You may have to go to the East Coast or West Coast to find some diversity.
0: I, I you know, um, because I work with a lot of law firms, as I said, I mean, I'm telling them, you got to go to the South.
1: Oh yeah, there too. You exactly. Know, go exactly. Go down.
0: Go down to the law schools in North Carolina and South Carolina. Go down there. Okay? Oh yeah, you're going to find your diversity.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, you're going to find it. And it's even to the point now where companies, and this is an article that I saw a couple of weeks ago, companies like Apple are starting to build facilities where the diversity is so they're not necessarily saying hey i'm going to recruit you to come all the way out to i think it's cupertino where is where they are in california we're going to build facilities where diversity is so we can attract diversity and they get to stay in a diverse demographic area which helps with the support of them like i say everybody's got a nine to five but you also got a five to nine so what happens outside oh, that, of the job? You do you for have sure. support, right? So companies are starting to do that, and that's yeah. You know, I'm gonna tell you that's a warning sign for us here in Minnesota. If we don't start to really fix that, what's going to happen is a talent drain is going to occur over the next say, 20 years.
0: Well, and the other thing I find is even with you know younger white colored people. Yeah. Okay. You know, I use the phrase white color to refer to white people. because sure. They don't believe it's a color. Sure. Um, Younger white-colored people want to work at diverse places. Yes. They do not. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want them to be all vanilla.
1: Yes, yes. Here's a stat that I shared yesterday in that training I was just telling you about. Four out of ten people turn down job opportunities, forego opportunities, if they, if they think the company is not inclusive. It has nothing to do with compensation. It has nothing to do with you know, nope. free pizza, nope. coffee, any of that stuff. They're saying, I'm not going to come work for you, 4 out of 10, because your organization is not diverse and inclusive. What does that say <laughs> 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 to you? I mean, really? Okay, so now I really need to think about that as I'm starting to recruit and I'm starting to you know, bring people into my organization.
0: So, David, I, you know, I've told you I think that you're an idealist, okay? And I don't know if you're gonna, you know, would agree with that, but you are. I mean, you're trying to, you're someone trying to change the world. You're trying to make the world a better place. Yes. What What made you an idealist? How did you get here to be of that mind frame?
1: I have a couple of things that I live by. One of the things I live by is this: if you wake up in the morning, everything's negotiable from there. (laughs) So if you start with that as a thought, as a, a a mantra, if you will, then that means that as soon as you are awake, everything coming at you, everything you you go through throughout the day, it's still a good day because you woke up. Right. And what you want to do and what you really want to have happen is the next day, you want to wake up again. And I don't care where you are in life, what stage you're at, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care what... You know, you're doing, who you are, your background. I don't care about, care about anything like that. If you wake up in the morning, just start with that. Everything else throughout the rest of the day, you can work through it. Well, I guess that would make me an idealist <laughs> from that perspective. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, I just believe that. I, just, I live that way, and I believe that. And I think I shared this in the meeting that you were in uh, with the Rotary Club. I said, you know, I live so that whoever I come in contact with is better because they met me. So hopefully, you're better because you met me. Hopefully, your audience is better because they listen to me. (laughs) But if you live that way, I think you are an idealist because what you're basically saying is life is good, and life is we know life is what you make it. But there's a lot of good in life versus a lot of bad. And what's wrong with uh, humanity is we tend to focus on the negative. You know, we we focus on the loss, right? So we focus on the things that, you know, don't matter as much when you look at the quality of life. So for me, it's really more about living in a way that you make others better and being thankful for the opportunity to actually live. Because everything else you can do beyond that is is amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, David, that is well said. Um, (laughs) And I know that I could sit here, we could have a great conversation for another hour, but unfortunately we're out of time. So um, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you here. for having me oh, on the show. I
1: really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Oh, well, you're welcome. All right, listeners, I've been speaking with David Edgerton Jr., the founder and principal of the DEJ Group, which is barely six months old, seven months old, and which way to go, way to rock it. And, um, and uh, if you want to find more out about David, David, go ahead and give your website.
1: Sure. Uh, my website is the dejgroup.com that's for my recruiting firm and then I have a personal website that is david edgerton junior jr.com and that's where you get to hear some more of my positive messages and things like that
0: okay that's great thanks david all right listeners when we're when we come back we'll do my C block thanks so very much 2.0 radio um, David David Edgerton um, Jr uh, remember that name okay you may hear it again on this show um, but remember that name because um, he's a rock star and um, just check out his websites and just please just remember okay All right we're in my C block now where I talk about my work as an idealist. Um, and I had an experience um, this week with um, a client, a company that I will not identify, where I did a training. Um, I did it online. Uh, we had 170 or so people that were on the, on the event. And it was with a talk. The talk is titled, "Gleaning Authenticity from a Moment of Truth. It is not my favorite talk, um, and the reason for that is it's my story. You know what? You, you, you come to me. I will talk about the work till the cows come home, about the work, about trying to make the world better, and, and, and how we as all humans can get, become familiar and get past our differences and all that. I will talk about that forever, but you asked me to come and talk about my story, and I am very reluctant to do that because I am always worried that I'm going to bore somebody. And you know, and I don't like the work being about me. I don't want I don't like aggrandizement. Whatever. Anyway, the client wanted this talk. And so the talk is partly my story, partly lessons I learned about facing some individual truths. And it's about moments of truth, about how all of us have moments of truth. And the client wanted this in part because I'd spoken there with them before and they wanted, Hey Ellie, we want you back, and that was nice to see. But it's also Pride Month, okay? And of course I'm transgender. Everyone understands that, right? And uh, so, um, you know, it was good to have me. Okay, so uh, the talk involves discussing what does it mean to live authentically and some of the barriers to that, like fear or like how we have golden handcuffs and then we don't have the ability to live authentically. Um, and authenticity is not simply about gender or sexuality. I mean, authenticity can be about, you know, you're, you're, you're a writer at heart and you've got to write. You've got to work on that book or you're a musician or you're a, an actor, a, a thespian, or you're a hiker or a fisher person. There, authenticity shows up in a variety of different ways. And so we, I gave that, you know, we started down the talk and we started talking about that. And I talk about how we also suppress our authenticity, okay? I mean, many of us do. I mean, we're afraid, to live authentic lives. We're afraid when moments of truth come, we're afraid to grab those moments because it's scary. It may mean we have to change our lives. And so we humans, we do as we let those moments pass sometimes. When it comes to authenticity, a lot of times we suppress our authenticity. But the talk this week, um, because I... I also don't want to just talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, If you've ever gone to one of my trainings, you know that a hallmark of it is engagement, though. So I'm like... If we do it online and I have polling and I'm asking, okay, why did you respond to the poll a certain way? Come on, talk to me. If we're in person, I'm like going up to people in the audience saying, hey, will you talk to me about this and all that stuff? And the, I think the good thing about all of that, and I know that I just scared half the audience with, oh my God. Um, I think what the good thing about that is I I can create a relatively safe space for people, you know, and if you've ever come to one of my trainings, you know that, uh, with me, a few things are clear. I don't use PowerPoints. I'm pretty self-deprecating. I'm pretty irreverent. Um, and uh, I believe in the power of human vulnerability. So when we did this talk, um, I asked people about their individual moments, if they were willing to talk about moments of truth, moments of truth that changed their lives. That you know, And it didn't take long. I had a woman who spoke about, even though she had this job, a very professional job, she had this calling from God to become a minister. And so on the side, she went to school and became an Episcopal minister. And she was she just talked about how fulfilling that was. Notwithstanding, she got a 40-hour-a-week job with this company, she's also doing that. And then um, we had a black man, in his, a younger man in his early 30s, who talked about struggling with sickle cell his entire life, that he had been even as a kid, he'd been in the hospital, two-week stretches every month, every other month, and he, and he talked about wondering how long he would live, because the, the life expectancy for somebody who's had that history with sickle cell, and I did not know this, but the life expectancy is only mid-40s, and he talked about being married and having children, trying to balance work, but knowing also that he doesn't know how much time he has left. It, oh, my goodness. But then we got a man who I will never, ever forget. And he started speaking and he started saying, I, I, he said, my heart is beating so very fast. And you could tell that he was emotional and you could tell that he was getting courage, that it was building up in him. You could tell, you could tell that this man was, was wanted to share but that it was hard and then he started talking about how he had almost taken his life a decade ago. And how he had called his best friend to say goodbye. And his best friend had said, huh, Uh uh-uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. And he said it was that, that moment of truth that he said, I will wake up tomorrow morning. You heard David talk about that in his, when we had David Edgerton talk about just waking up, it's a good day if you can do that. But I have to tell you, as this man shared the story, and I am not doing it justice whatsoever, I, I started crying. I could see people on the screen crying. I, I had to take my glasses off. I was, I, was on, I was crying, but on the verge of sobbing, it was so powerful and 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 everyone when we share our stories when we understand that we're all human together all of the barriers break down they do and we just come to understand we are all trying to make our way through life that is the only way we will get past what separates us right now in 2021 Vulnerability, sharing, commonalities. Okay, well, uh, that was a big show. That was a little heavy, um, but I hope that you enjoyed it. A big uh, shout out to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you are always a rock star in my world. And to you audience members, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for going to the podcast. Thank you for talking about the show. Please share about it. Continue to do that. Um, I'm trying to give you the best quality that I can. And between now and when you hear my voice next, do me a favor, go out and make the world better. You can do it. Thanks so very much. Bye-bye.